we're in the second week of our little parenthesis. When we finish the Gospel of John, at least for me, and I don't, I don't know about for you, but for me, at the end of that study, I found myself really getting in to the person of, of Peter, really studying Peter. And I found myself, just out of a habit, desire, whatever, moving right into the book of Acts, which is the very next book after John. And so I thought we would take four weeks as we head to summer vacation, take four weeks and do a little series that we're calling The Rest of the Story. What happens between Peter and Jesus? Last week we looked at our marching orders. What Jesus told you and I to do, the disciples to be sure, but you and I as well. Today we look at the first revival meeting ever. Next week we look at your biography. One of those uh, great moments for me and my Christian faith is when I opened the book of Acts and saw that my biography was there. I couldn't believe it. There it was, right there. And yours too. Next week we look at that. And since I'm leaving town, then, then we'll talk about what should a church be, because I'm going to be gone and I can't take any of your phone calls. So those will be the, those will be the four topics that we'll look at over these weeks. Last week, let me bring you up to speed as we work our way through, uh, obviously very sketchy manner, through the book of Acts. <coughs> Last week, Jesus said to the disciples, wait, stay in Jerusalem, don't leave the promise that the Father has given you. And the promise that the Father had given them was what? The Holy Spirit. In fact, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, uh, uh, Jesus says this, it's the key verse in the book of Acts, when the power of the Spirit comes upon you, you'll be my witnesses all over the world. The two words there, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit is the key character in the book of Acts. The phrase Holy Spirit, or Spirit with a capital S, occurs over a hundred times in this book. The Holy Spirit is the key character in the book of Acts. And the issue of power, I am a, uh, I am a political junkie in terms of, I just love to watch this stuff, so this is kind of a great time for me to watch this. And what you've seen, or what I've heard anyway, on Monday and Tuesday and last night as well, is the Democratic Party and almost every speaker to empower the people. I'm talking about empowering people, preparing people. Let me tell you, the only way to truly empower people is through the Holy Spirit. In fact, last night, Mario Cuomo said this. He said, Bill Clinton is the hope of America. <clears throat> and, I, I, and, I, and what I try not to do is get political because I don't want to do that but let me tell you this Bill Clinton's not the hope of America George Bush isn't the hope of America two weeks ago on tape I look like a, like a wizard now I said Ross Perot isn't even going to run the hope of America is the Lord Jesus Christ that's the only hope there is that's the only hope we have and that's the certainty there's our hope and there's our rock important to participate in all this, and please don't interpret this as something not lose focus. Let's look at the core issue, the person of Christ. And he says, you'll have power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses. So they go to Jerusalem and they do something that you and I don't need to do. They wait. They wait for the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, you can open them to that. We'll have the verses on the screen. 
Acts chapter 2, here it happens. Acts in the second chapter, beginning in the first verse, Luke writes this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. All of them. At this moment, the Holy Spirit was delivered to the church. The Holy Spirit lives today in His church, His people. If you're here today and you're a Christian, in the true sense of the word, if you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior, the Holy Spirit lives in you. Someone asked me not long ago, uh, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? And my response was, every Christian is baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's kind of like saying, are you a born-again Christian? You're stuttering. There's no such thing as an unborn-again Christian. There's no one who's been born again that's not a Christian. And no one who hasn't been born again that is a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian, to be born again. And that word, I know, has a negative connotation and has been so misused by our society. But remember, those are the words of the Lord Jesus. Those aren't my words or your words. To be born again. And the Holy Spirit comes and now there's power. And our focus today drops down to verse 22 of Acts chapter 2. To this guy named Peter. And again, I think Peter over the years has gotten a pretty bum rap. We look at him as kind of the big dumb fisherman and we look at him in all sorts of different ways. But Peter now delivers a powerful sermon. I'll tell you the ending up front. 3,000 people enter the kingdom this day as a result of Peter's words and the power of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people. It's the first revival meeting. I've never been to a revival meeting. The closest I came is we had a guy that came through town that did a crusade. This is my dark side, and I admit it up front. And I went the first night, and he was fine. He was eloquent, and, but apparently he hadn't hit quota or whatever. So we're singing, here we go again, and we're going, and one more time, one more time, one more time. And I was praying, and then I looked up, and I looked at him, and I realized he's leading us singing just as I am. And he had on a toupee. And I thought, that seems odd to me. A dark side, I admit. Just as I am, then what are you doing? Give me a break here. Just as I am, and that is the way I come. Well, Peter stands up. And all of us in, in this room who know Christ as our Lord and Savior can really learn a lesson from Peter today. Peter's going to communicate. Number one, a changed life. Number two, he's going to communicate his message. And he's going to do it without compromising. I want to try to paint the picture for you, and yet I know I can't. Peter is going out. You see in verse 22, men of Israel. These are Jews. These are fellows who probably know him, and he knows them very well. They've seen him. They may even well know of his gigantic failure when he denied Christ three times. They may well know that Peter has suffered uh, defeat after defeat after defeat. And yet Peter stands up, sin and all, and shares his faith in an uncompromising way. That's a valuable lesson to you and I. And yet I'm sure he does it in a way that is filled with love. But his desire and love and graciousness for the people 
does not overcome his desire to produce a sound and true message. That's what we have to do. You and I live in a time where churches are reaching out to lost people, trying to attract them to the church. And the great temptation there is to compromise the message, to change the message, to alter the church service itself even. And that I don't think should ever happen. Should we be sensitive to those that are lost? Obviously. Should we reach out to them? Obviously. I'm sitting in a bar at 7 o'clock on a Thursday morning. I mean, that's part of what I've given my life to. But we can't do it at the expense of the message. Look at this. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene. And they know Jesus well. He's going to remind them of how well they know Him. Jesus the Nazarene. A man attested to you by God. He was attested to you by God who did miracles and wonders and signs. Remember we said the Greeks were looking intellectually, philosophically at Jesus. But the Jews were looking for miracles. Give us miracles. Give us signs. Peter said, Jesus did those miracles and signs and wonders by the power of God. He performed them in your midst. Look what he's doing. He's saying, you can't deny this. They never sat around and denied that the blind guy could see or the lame guy could walk or the deaf guy could hear. That was never an issue. In fact, he's going to say in a minute, the resurrection isn't even an issue because you witnessed that as well. He loves these people enormously, but he doesn't change the message. In fact, he starts, you know that the word gospel means good news. But before I can give you the good news, I've got to give you the bad news. Before I can tell you that Jesus died on the cross for you, I've got to tell you that you're lost and sinful. Look at what he says. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. He had this, he said, I don't want you to think for a second that somehow God blinked and that's how Jesus ended up on the cross. Jesus was on the cross for one specific reason, because God wanted him there. From the very beginning, he determined he'd be there. This may drop in some of you. Some of you, this isn't going to mean anything. Others of you, this will drop like a little hand grenade right in the middle of your table. Jesus had to go to the cross because there was no other way for you and I to be redeemed. We have this idea that God can do everything. Well, can God do everything? No. Can God sin? Absolutely not. Can God act contrary to His character or His nature? Absolutely not. He could not sit in heaven and say, Ah, their sins are forgiven. He couldn't do that. And maintain His justice and His holiness and His purity. There had to be a sacrifice and only a perfect sacrifice, only Christ. Christ had to die on the cross, men and women. There was no other way. In fact, Jesus said the night before, what did He say? Father, if there's another way, let's do it. If there's a plan B, now's the time to bring it forward. Because Jesus was beginning to understand what was going to happen on the cross. He was beginning to understand that He was going to be separated from God. And sin of men and women of all of history that would ever, ever, ever come to Him in repentance of faith was thrust on Him at that moment. And it had to happen so the wrath of God could be satisfied. You don't hear that message a lot anymore. But it's absolutely true. It's the core message of the Gospel. That is the Gospel. Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel. 
I'm not embarrassed by the gospel. He really says, in a negative sense, we would state it positively this way, I'm proud of the gospel because it's the only way out. For the wrath of God is being revealed. God's angry. God's not happy. God's angry at sin and sinners. But we sterilize that. Don't do it. In fact, look at the next phrase. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. You nailed Him and put Him to death. Some of you have had this experience, so uh, you'll relate quickly. A few weeks ago, there was a man who for years has been trying to get his wife to come to his study. Not this one, but another one. And she wouldn't come, she wouldn't come, she wouldn't come, she wouldn't come, she wouldn't come. Finally, she decides to come. She's Jewish. And she came on the day that we were speaking about the crucifixion of Christ and essentially teaching what those words said. And she walked out of there saying, he's anti-Semitic, those people are hate mongers, they hate Jews. Nothing could be further from the truth. And I asked him, in fact, I begged him, get the tape. Because I don't think you heard it. I think what happened is, she came in with reservations. You came in filled with tension. You've had that. You bring somebody from the first time and you're just saying, Oh, Tom, don't screw it up. Don't talk. <laughs> don't talk about money today. Oh, please don't say anything about money. Don't say anything about this. Don't say anything about this. And I said, once I said something, your mind slammed shut and you never heard the rest of it. Because what I said right after that is, Martin Luther says, in our pockets... We carry the very nails that were used to crucify Christ because we crucified Him. Not the Jews. In fact, technically, the Romans crucified Him. But He's speaking to the Jews. And look what He does. He doesn't dilly-dally around. In love and graciousness and concern, He smacks them right between the eyes with their sin. Let's just get our cards on the table. The problem that the man or woman who's not a Christian has, the singular largest problem they have, is sin. And there's only one remedy for it, and that's the point he's going to make. There's some great lessons here, as God works incarnate through Peter. But Peter never talks, nor does Paul, about the crucifixion without talking about the resurrection. And he says this, And God raised him up again to put an end to the agony of death. An end to the agony of death. Many of you have had people you love dearly die agonizing deaths. You've watched people just literally begin to just deteriorate, rot away with cancer. Very agonizing to Christian men and women. He's not talking about physically, he's talking about spiritually. He's saying if Christ doesn't come out of that tomb, if Christ doesn't make a provision for us, then there's no hope. When we die, we're separated from Him. When you die, if you know Christ, you're going to heaven forever. How good can it get? He said, you know this. Now look at what he does. This is beautiful, big dumb fisherman Peter. He's talking to these Jews, so he quotes. We won't spend a lot of time on it. I'm not sure I understand all of the psalm. If I remember, it's Psalm 16. He quotes to them a psalm that's very familiar to them. In fact, Paul quotes it a couple times later on in the book of Acts when he's speaking to Jewish audiences. David says, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence. He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. My tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will abide in hope. And now, here's the point here. Because thou wilt not abandon my soul to go to Hades, nor allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. 
This was a psalm that they probably prayed and sang regularly. And yet we're a little bit foggy about what this meant. They were wondering if it applied to David. They were wondering how it applied to all, but they sensed it spoke to Messiah. And now Peter says, Brethren, may I confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is there. They said, hey, obviously David's not talking about himself because he died, he buried. Go down there, make a left, over to Main Street, make a right, and there's his bones. So he's not talking about himself. His body underwent decay. And so, because he was a prophet and knew what God had sworn to him on an oath to a seat of one of his descendants of his throne, because God was moving David to write this, he wasn't writing it on his own, he was a prophet, moved by God, he knew, he looked ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Christ, he knew his flesh would not decay, this Jesus God raised up again, which you all witnessed. What a powerful and compelling argument. He said, you saw the resurrection. You saw the crucifixion. Let me try to tie it together for you. Jesus becomes your Messiah. Having been exalted at the right hand, received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He poured out this which you both see and hear. Again, very familiar to them. He goes back to the prophet Joel. He said, Joel talked about a time when the Spirit would be poured out. He said, you just saw the Spirit being poured out. You've heard of it before, but you've seen it. For it wasn't David who ascended into heaven, but the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Therefore, that all the house of Israel know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus that you crucified. He says this, he's the Messiah. These people got up every day and prayed and prayed and prayed for Messiah. And Paul, uh, Peter's saying to them, he's it. <coughs> he died on the cross. He's what you've been waiting for. He's at the right hand. He is the Lord and Christ. He's God come in the flesh for you. And look at this. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples or apostles, what should we do? See, this was what happens when the Word of God is used and moved by the Spirit of God. You're pierced to the heart. We had a meeting a couple of weeks ago talking with some people, and we were making this point that when you're talking to a non-Christian, they essentially have three types of objections. Number one, they have intellectual objections. Intellectually, they question. I remember when I sat down with Larry Wright, I said, wait a minute, you believe the Bible is really the Word of God? You believe in Adam and Eve? You believe in a flood? You believe, you believe, you really believe it? They were intellectual questions. And virtually every intellectual question you can probably come close to already answering and with a little bit of research you can quickly answer. When you're sitting and talking to somebody and you're pouring out your heart, you're sharing your Christian faith, they're coming with three kinds of objections and the first one is intellectual. And you can deal with those. The second one is emotional. It gets a little tougher. A couple of weeks ago on uh, 2020 or 48 hours or one of them, I don't remember which, uh, they had a, a group of about 30 uh, men and women who were in their early 40s, late 30s, early 40s. And they had all been molested by this same Catholic priest. 
Now, this is not a criticism of the Catholic Church, okay? This is the point. This is an illustration. And as they went around the room and they interviewed these people, <coughs> all many of them made observations that sounded like this. I felt like my church turned its back on me. I felt like they denied me. Uh, Ted Turner, uh, who is uh, obviously one of the kings of secular humanism, uh, when you listen to Turner, will go back to a time when uh, his sister, very, 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 very sick, and if I remember the story, died. And Turner's never been able to forgive God for that. Those are emotional objections. Those are steeped in the heart and the mind. Yet I think you can deal with those too. I can deal with the intellectual objections and I can deal with the emotional objections because once I remove myself, I see that that doesn't speak for everyone. Obviously, Jim Baker is an embarrassment to the Christian faith. Jimmy Swaggart's an embarrassment to the Christian faith. But I've got to rush out and say, do you understand, everybody's not like that. That's not what everybody's all about that claims the name of Christ. Intellectual objections, emotional objections, and the third one, volitional or will objections. And men and women, you can't change that. That's not your job. That's God's job. So that when you're sitting down and you're sharing your faith, and the person on the other side is not responding, and you've dealt with the intellectual, and you've dealt with the emotional, then here's what you know. God's not working in their life. Maybe never certainly not now. When God's working in their life, something happens. They are pierced to the heart. And if you've ever been around it, where you've seen the Word of God taken by the Spirit of God and implied to a person, it is an awesome sight. I used to teach a Wednesday night study in a room uh, all about this size down in here. And we'd pack a hundred plus people in there and it was, it was wild. It, we really had fun. And one night there was a, a gal, and she brought her sister. And they were sitting over here, and uh, I went over, and the sister was there, and I said, Hi, how are you? And I'm fine. And, What's your name? Oh, my name's Kathy. And, oh, where are you from? I'm from Michigan. Oh, Michigan. How do you like it? Oh, well, it's really hot in the summer. And, but it's, it's, you know, all those same nothing conversations. And, but she's peppy and she's cheery. And she said, oh, I've heard a lot about you. I've heard a lot about this group. And I can't wait to, to experience what goes on. And I'm really looking forward to this. And this will be fun. And real peppy and bouncy. Kind of like one of the palm line girls or a cheerleader type. So I started to talk. And she had her pen and her paper. And after a few minutes, I saw her pen went down. And then the paper went like this. And then, as I kept talking, all of a sudden, she just closed up. And I've done this enough to just know it when I see it. I mean, this gal was closed. Almost, I thought she was going to go fetal on me over there. She was all... So, I'm bothered by that, and you would be too. And, and so when I finished, somebody came up with a question, and I turned around, and they were gone. And I felt badly that I didn't get over to say something or see what the problem was. But I figure, whatever, God's in charge. So I'm walking out to my car, parked under a light, and there are these two sisters, nose to nose, fingers just pointing right in each other's chest. 
I'm saying this is, this is kind of like mud wrestling without the mud. This is kind of exciting here. So let's figure out. And they're standing right by my car. So I figured, whatever. So up I came, I said, hey, how you doing? <laughs> I know, not so well. I said, okay, anything I can do? No. And then the sister that was here said, will you tell her something for me? Will you tell her? And then the other sister interrupted and said, I know exactly what went on there tonight. I said, well, okay, what went on? My sister called you this week. She told you what's going on in my life. She told you the problems I've got. And you took a whole lesson. And you took that lesson and you worked it all around there because she got me here and you knew she was never coming. I was never coming again. And you took that whole lesson and you built it around there just to try to get me, didn't you? That's what that was all about tonight was to try to manipulate me and get me, wasn't it? I said, well, sure. <laughs> no. I said, Kathy, you'll never believe this. I know you won't believe this. But your sister didn't call me. You were there tonight because God wanted you there. <coughs> what happened is, we were uh, one of those nights where we were teaching the Word of God and His Spirit was applying it to your heart. You were pierced to the quick. You've had that experience. I'll bet every one of you have had some experience like that where you say, I've even heard you say it, it was like this morning time that was just you and I in the room talking. Well, that's God at work. You want to see something exciting? Try this. Try the Spirit of God to a child of God. Now it's really exciting. Now it's really transforming. Now it really changes things. And that's what goes on in this scene with Peter. Peter's not bowling these guys over with, their elo with his eloquence. You know, and sometimes we think of Paul in the same way. Paul says of his own speech, I came in fear and trembling, and they said, you know, Paul wasn't even a very good speaker. And that's probably good. Jonathan Edwards, who's considered the greatest preacher that we've ever had in this country, when he delivered a, sin, a, a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, they say that at that point in time, Edwards was losing his eyesight. And as Edwards delivered that, he was reading it monotone. And they said people were so being moved by the Holy Spirit that they were clinging to the pillars in the church for fear that they were falling and slipping into hell by that little thread that was holding them out. Well, that certainly isn't delivery. That's the Spirit of God moving. And oh, for the moment when that happens, they're pierced to the heart. How do you know they're pierced? <coughs> Interesting. Peter didn't have to manipulate them. Peter didn't have to move them. Peter didn't have to coerce them. They said, what do we got to do now? What do we need to do now? The Philippian jailer says the same thing a little bit later. What must I do to be saved? They said, that's Peter. All we know is what you just told us. All we know is Jesus has been crucified. We were part of what did it. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And Peter says, repent. Interesting. And again, I don't mean this critically. But Peter didn't say, pray this prayer. He didn't give him a four spiritual laws. 
He didn't say, ask Jesus into your heart. He didn't say, make a decision right now. That seems to be more an American phenomena than a biblical phenomena. He said, repent. That means change your mind. Moody uh, uh, drew the picture of repentance this way. From birth on, we're walking away from God. We're filled with sin and we're walking away from God. And when we repent, we turn around and the rest of our life is walking back toward Him. Repentance is ongoing. It's continuous. You and I live in a time where we got somebody and they say, what should we do? And we say, pray the prayer. And the minute they pray the prayer, we say, now you know you're in the kingdom. You don't know if they're in the kingdom or not. You don't know if I'm in the kingdom. Most of you don't even know if there's a Susan or a Sarah or a Haley. You don't know anything about me. You don't know if I'm in the kingdom or not. Are you in the kingdom? That's the question. Is there in your life repentance? It isn't just a decision. It's a whole transformed life. Here's some of the list and then we'll adjourn. Evidences of a saving faith. Number one, there's a love for God. Do you love God? Do you truly love God? (coughs) Is He your heart's desire? After that is true repentance. Not these fake tears. Uh, I used to think guys never cried. Well, now I've discovered guys cry and maneuver you just like a woman cries and maneuvers you. Guys are terribly deceitful and filled with ego. But so are their counterparts, so it works out well. I've had guys sit and say, I'll do anything, oh, just to get her back. Anything, anything, anything. Oh, I don't want to lose her. Oh, she's the greatest wife I've ever had. She's terrific. What a mother to the children. I'll do anything. Give up your girlfriend? Well, I'm not going to do that. I'll do anything else, though. Oh, I don't want to lose her now. It's a phony repentance. I can kid you and you can kid me. This is a changed heart. And it begins to exhibit itself in genuine humility. This probably will come as a shock to none of you, but I wrestle all this time with humility. It drives me crazy. And I think I'm starting to get it in a box, which is good, I think. I went through this time of saying, what can I do to be humble? And you know how that works. The minute I figured out what I needed to do to be humble, I became so proud of how humble (laughs) I was. Harry Ironside, great story of Harry Ironside, great old preacher in Chicago. And One day a man who knew him enough and loved him enough and cared about him came to him and said, Harry, you're fine and all this, but I'll tell you what, man, are you getting proud? So Ironside said, what should I do? And he said, well, I'll tell you what I think you need to do. Get a big sandwich board, two sides of them, and go down, go down by, uh, in the center of uh, Chicago, busiest time, all day long, and just with the big signs that say, repent, 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 and just stand there all day and call people to repentance as they go by. Ironside said, that's perfect, that's what I'll do. And down he went, all day. Came back that night, and his friend stopped by and said, well, how did it go? Harry said, it was really something. I don't think there's another guy in Chicago that could have done that. (laughs) That's the way we are. Humble. Here's what I think, humility. Here's how it comes. Let me tell you another thing. I don't think we even know it when we see it. 
We think the guy that's setting up the chairs or cleaning the toilet is humble by his duty. He can be a proud, arrogant guy cleaning the toilet. Just like the guy in the front can be proud and arrogant, or he can be a humble servant. Here's how you get humble quickly. Know God. Just look at Him. Nothing to do, just know Him. And as you know Him more and more and more, and He gets bigger and bigger and bigger, you get smaller and smaller and smaller, and you'll have genuine humility. Devotion to His glory. As those accolades come, and they will. If you're a child of God who's received a spiritual gift and you have, and you begin to use it, people are going to notice that. When those accolades come, you're devoted to giving the glory to God, to seeing His will displayed. His majesty displayed. That's what glory means. God on display. Prayer. Prayer. Just time in prayer and communication with Him. Ongoing, all day long. Selfless love. This is so contrary to the culture in which we live. Selfless love. A love that says, I'm really concerned about you more than I am myself. I met with a husband and wife not long ago and the, and the wife identified early on her problem and her problem was that she just loved too much. And I assured her quickly that wasn't her problem. Whatever her problem was, it wasn't that. And I know what we mean and I have all this idea and I got all this psychology stuff figured out. How much are you supposed to love? Love like Jesus loved the church. Ah, how did Jesus love the church? Did Jesus say, well, I love the church as long as the church is responding? I don't believe so. He loved the church so much that He became obedient to the point of death, even a humiliating death on the cross. Selfless love. Love that says, I really truly care deeply about you and about others. I love God. I love His Word. I love His people. Separation from the world. Separation from the world system. We've got to work in the world system. It's not a call to get out of the world system, but it's a call to function in the world system without playing the game, without buying into the system, without believing the, the lie that says a, a bigger house or a different car or a new spouse is going to make you happy. Separation from the world system, and then these last two grow hand in hand. Spiritual growth and obedient living. What has God called you to do? How's God called you to live? He's called you to be honest, straightforward in your business dealings. He's called you husbands to love your wives and you wives to love your, church, uh, your, uh, your wives to submit to your husbands. And you singles to stay pure sexually. He's called us to share our faith. He's called us to be part of the local body, the church. What should a Christian do? The Scripture is filled with those charges. See, that's a sign of real faith. It's got nothing to do with praying a prayer. It's got nothing to do with the decision. You know you're a Christian based on a changed heart and a transformed life. That's how you know. That's what he says to them. Not a criticism. There may for many of you indeed be a point in time where you saw it and you just committed your life to Christ. But if there's none of these other characteristics, it wasn't real. Whatever it was, it wasn't real. For Peter, it was real. His life was changed. Immediately, his desire to share his faith. And it, and it wasn't, don't try to model just his action. 
It was his desire to do what God had called him to do. That's what it was. And it changed his life. Hey, next week, your biography is right here in the book of Acts. And it's a good one. Let's pray and we'll see you next week. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's true, that we can believe it, and that it speaks to us. Father, we uh, hunger for the day that your Spirit continues to apply your word to our lives. God, there may be men and women who are here today that aren't Christians. Father, we pray that uh, the one who invited them or one of the people that they meet can uh, answer their intellectual and their emotional questions. But God, don't let us play Holy Spirit. We pray that you would touch their hearts and bring them to you in repentance and faith. Father, we praise you. What a joy to look around on a hot summer morning in the middle of July and see a room filled the people that you want are here, Father. We ask you now to energize us, to make us bold, and at the same time make us gracious and loving as we present the gospel. In fact, as we live the gospel. Father, you've called us to that, and we strive to live that way. We do it in the precious name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next week.